What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Idea Space. I'm Yancey Strickler. Before today's episode, a quick note. This is the final episode in this first season of the Idea Space podcast. Season two of this series will begin in the fall. I'll keep publishing the occasional essay on the Idea Space newsletter, but this podcast will go quiet until then. Thanks for reading and listening. When I was still living in New York, I had a weekly lunch date with a good friend, the artist Raphael Rosendahl. We'd meet at Barrio Chino on Broom Street in the Lower East Side, sometimes catch a movie at Metrograph after. I was in the early stages of writing This Could Be Our Future, and he was producing new work in a variety of mediums, lenticular paintings, tapestries, and websites. The website is Raphael's primary medium as an artist. He makes standalone websites, some interactive, some with audio, all in motion, that are works of art. They're beautiful, hypnotic, striking, mesmerizing. They make you smile and draw you in. There are more than a hundred of these, each one its own universe. And this work has not gone unnoticed. Raphael is frequently recognized as a pioneering digital artist. His websites get more than 40 million page views a year, and his work is in the Whitney Museum's collection. Earlier this year, and partially at my suggestion, Raphael made new work available for sale as NFTs. Several unexpectedly sold for six figures, and Raphael has found himself one of the early stars of the new medium. Today, Raphael joins the idea space to share his hopeful but punk rock guilt-ridden feelings about the experience, his explanation for how the art world is like a video game, and a powerful reminder of how to cultivate creativity. Here's Raphael. Hi, Raphael. Hey, Yassi. I want to start just by asking, I mean, we're, we're friends. I kind of know this, but maybe I don't all the way know this, but I'd love to hear about where you grew up, what, what your background is. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's funny interviewing each other when we hang out all the time, especially when you were still in New York. And uh, we go to the movies every week. And I, I, I have a tendency to become friends who are in between jobs. So you were in between jobs and then. We had a lot of time hanging out. Um, no, I'm, I'm Rafael. I'm from the Netherlands. I was born there. My mom is from Brazil. Uh, but I was really, I grew up in the Netherlands, but sort of with a, um, always traveling, always visiting other countries, so always interested in other countries and went to school in the Netherlands and then to art school. But even during art school, I was making friends through the internet in other countries and doing exhibitions elsewhere. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved to LA and then started missing home. So I went back to the Netherlands. Then I tried Paris and I tried Berlin and I tried Tokyo. And every time it would be about a year and then a year back. And then um, finally I settled on New York and meeting my wife here and making a lot of friends here and liking the energy and even though it's it, it has been difficult at, at times like as many people know i still like it i'm still here so i don't know if that answers your question of where i was yeah coming from. I, yeah yeah you know it, it does i in the netherlands were you living in a small town in a city like what what was that I was, like i was born in amsterdam which is a medium-sized town i, I think it's still under a million people 
but uh, that was until I was five and then we moved to another town and then to another town. And so I, I grew up from my 10th to my 18th in Maastricht in the, the south of the Netherlands. It's kind of a quaint old town. It's where the Romans first settled in the Netherlands. It's, it's a point of a river that's convenient. Um, so there's a lot of old structures and old churches and uh, it's a cute town and I still have a lot of friends from that time. So it was a very nice, uh, I, I think it was very, uh, there was a lot going on with music and there was were a lot of facilities for photography or printmaking and things like that that I was trying when from age 14. So I, I think it was kind of special that way. Not every town has those facilities, but I had access to a lot of like developing my own black and white photos and silk screening and etching. And uh, my father is an art teacher and a painter. And my mom is not a practicing architect, but she studied architecture. So um, it was always easy for me to get a hold of materials or do things. And that never seemed intimidating. So I, I think I grew up in a, I had a head start, like the same if, if your parents are athletes and you also go into sports, then you get a lot of tips and tricks. Do you, do you have like a first memory of recognizing your artistic abilities or creativity? Was it always there? Was it more about like learning to apply it more seriously? Uh, I, I remember figuring out perspective and sort of what you call isometric perspective, like a early video game sort of. You draw a, a box, like a shoe box or something like that, and all the lines are uh, parallel instead of going to a vantage point. But sort of figuring out that trick to make something look 3D and then drawing a dog's nose that way. I remember that very clearly. Like if you imagine just the geometric nose of a dog and it's like, oh, this way it looks like it's coming off the paper. And I found that very interesting. But sort of, I, I think from age zero, I was just... Uh, in a stroller in a museum or always going to exhibitions. So I really think it's similar. Like if you grow up with religious parents, then you probably know your religion very well. And I think my parents, their religion was culture. So that, that might be a way to understand. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're, you're known as a digital artist, you know, an internet artist. Um, yeah. When did that start? That started, I think, in 96. I, I started, we had dial-up. And uh, I mean, it started, the first memory I have was visiting a friend and they had a Mac. And most people didn't have Macs. They had DOS computers. And so they had a drawing program on there. And maybe I was eight years old or nine years old. And it was really fun or kind of magical and playing with it, but then I didn't have any access to computers for a long time. And then age 16, I remember going online and I was really into comic books. So I would try to find interviews with comic book artists or lyrics of music that I couldn't find in the album sleeve. I remember always trying to find things of, of the real world. And then at some point, a few years later, trying to think what what is on the internet that doesn't happen in the real world? But I was always very interested in distribution. So the, even before the computer, I was making comics and I liked Xeroxing them and not making zines, but sort of making things for the school paper or multiplying things, making posters. And so I was interested in this thing that 
there's no original and the image uh, can spread. And that was before the computer. But then when the computer came along, um, one of the things that's cool about a computer is you can do things that nobody did before because it seemed, I think that was my main thing with the computer. I would always draw and I was like, oh, this looks too much like Robert Crump or this looks too much like another comic book artist. And it's very hard to find your own style. And then the computer came along and it's like, oh, then, yeah, this is new. And it just felt much easier to be in a new space. So that was the, the original excitement, I think. So I was just reading a, a recent, I guess, an artist statement, um, part of a gallery show you have coming up later this year, where you're explaining your work. And you say, quote, sort of speaking about how you make um, in particular kinds of work websites, you say, my idea was simple. I did not want to make a website that showed IRL documentation. I wanted to make websites that take advantage of the possibilities of the browser. These works are generative moving images. They're not videos or animations. They are code-based algorithms. They behave like a fountain or a waterfall, always doing the same thing, but never repeating itself. Um, so can you describe, so there are, you say you have 120 websites out there now um, that are behaving, living, uh, that sort of maybe seem animated, but are something different. Can, can you explain what your website work is about? Yeah, well, um, I always say my work is not about something, but it is. There's a difference. So I, I think uh, when you think of a, an icon for a software, like on your home screen, on your phone, that's not the software. That's a link, and then it opens the software. And that's how a lot of people see art. They're like, oh, I'll look at the painting, but then it will tell me a story and then it will uh, a, a, B, C, and D, and then I can go to bed and understand it and know everything's okay. Um, so people want closure the same way they want to see the ending of a movie. But I see it art more the same way you, you would look at a flower or a tree or a glass of milk and you don't have to think about what does this mean and what will story will this tell? Or, or you just look at it and say, oh, it's interesting how this tree moves in the wind and that's it. You don't have, you don't have to attach any value or any, you can, but it, so my work in general, I, I have a problem with the word about, but I don't even think that's what you were asking, but that. But I, I love that. Yeah, that was great. That was great to hear. Yeah. I, I was interested in, you know, cause I, I, I love your webs, your websites and the, and the idea that these are code-based algorithms, they're generative, um, mm -hmm. You know that they are well, living. They are. Behaving. I can tell you how it started because the basically you start with the computer and then uh, you can't paint on a computer the same way you can on on canvas. So you can try and it, but it's a different thing. And then you start thinking, what can I do here that I can't do? Because even when I was fourteen, I was making stop motion animations with Legos. So we had an old VHS camera with those big tapes, and then you hit you try to hit pause and play very fast so you only have a few frames and then you move the character the, the physical puppet you move it slightly and then hit pause and play and pause and play and it takes you three days to make 30 seconds of animation so I was coming from always exploring photography and video as toys you know like as a kid and having fun and then the computer came along and it's the same thing so I tried animating things in, in After Effects in a, a video program and I would make an animation and it was 
pretty interesting, but then I couldn't put it on the internet because it was too big. Or I would have to compromise the work and really uh, process it to a small size and it didn't look as good as it could. And so then I started playing around with Flash and later JavaScript and you could make these line-based images that are scalable. And at first it was just an animation, but then even with the animation, I would run into problems. The, the things I couldn't animate, and I met a coder. The best example is this uh, website, Stagnation Means Decline. Um, and it's, this is a stag stagnation meets decline.com. Stagnation means decline. So it, means and decline. It, and it's uh, just, you just see stacks of dollar bills rising. They're also isometric. The same thing I described with the dog's nose. It's basically the same thing. So, it's it's um, if you don't in perspective things in the foreground are bigger than they are in the background, but in isometric perspective, a lot of early video games, the lines are parallel, so things in the foreground are just as big as things in the background. It looks kind of cartoonish or childish. And a lot of medieval illustrations in in uh, ancient books are that way. It's before the Renaissance. Anyways, I was animating it and the computer would crash all the time because it was so many objects on the stage and so much, it, it was just too much for computers at the time to handle. And I met Rainier and he said, oh, if we don't have too many instances of the dollar bills on the stage, but just enough to cover the background color, then I, with code, I can just flip the, the layering of them. So basically what I'm saying is if you keep, if you if I was animating it, I would just have to add more and more and more lines on the on the. This is very hard for a podcast, and it's it's very simple if you see it. But anyway, he solves it with code, and the benefit of solving it with code is that we didn't have to have a beginning or an ending. So he could say, "Oh, the next dollar bill will start at the top right, and then the next one will start in the middle, and the next one will start at the bottom, and and it will just do its own thing." And and once that door opened up, it was a lot of the, yeah, it, it's funny, like I always try to explain to people because they see the work and they're not sure if it's random or animated. And it, for a lot of people, it doesn't matter, but you can kind of feel it. It's the same with screensavers. Um, but the, the, the most interesting thing for me as a maker is that you have a code-based work and it's very easy to change things later. So in, in animation, you might animate a whole timeline and put everything exactly the right place, maybe to sync it to music. And once everything's done, it would take a lot of work to change things. But when a work is code-based, you just have all these numbers that you can change, like, oh, make it go faster, make it go slower. And uh, it, it's a bit like when you make a soup, if you add too much salt, it's very hard to get rid of the salt. But with a code-based work, you can change the parameters even at the end. One of my favorites of yours is much better than this. Yeah. So folks listening, go to muchbetterthanthis.com. So did that start with you? It's two faces kissing, two yeah. mouths kissing. Did that start with you then and animating something and then you're, you're well, working with your... How that, that one happen? is a funny story, actually. So it, I, it, I think the, the first half of my career, the first 10 years, I was focused on subjects and later more on actions so it, it became more abstract over the years so in the beginning it was like a dollar bill or a jello dessert or a road or like 
at first it was more nouns and now it's more verbs. So later it was more like, what if things fall down or what if they all float or, uh, and that particular piece, I had tried many t subjects because that's a big part of being an artist is like, what's your subject? What do you want to focus on? And, or how do you want to show those subjects? And I thought, oh, I need more. I, I hadn't addressed anything about love or intimacy or tenderness. So I just had this idea that of this moment of kissing is interesting and maybe something with colors happening at the moment of the touch. Uh, and I was living in LA, but I couldn't animate it uh, uh, without photography. So I had to film someone kissing. And I would ask friends and I always felt in, in LA, people are kind of sensitive and uh, I'm a bit direct. So I already felt like I had to hold back a bit with my personality. Like I couldn't be myself completely. So I'd ask some friends like, oh, could I take some pictures of you guys kissing and then uh, use it as a source material for an animation? And they were all kind of uncomfortable with it. It was a strange question. Even though I knew them very well, both both the partners of a couple, it was still a very awkward question. So then I moved back to the Netherlands and I thought, oh, that should be easy. People are more relaxed. But even there, people were like, I don't really... I'm not comfortable being filmed while I'm kissing. So it, it did, I, in my brain, it was not a big deal, but for a lot of people it is. And then finally I asked my sister and her boyfriend and because she's my sister, that was a bit easier to ask. Um, so what we did was we had to put them down on the floor with their head on a pillow so that their head would stay kind of still. And then we put a camera above them and a TV on the side, and we put these sort of motion tracking dots on their face, and we also put them on the screen so we could see where they're still in the same position if they move back and forth. And we tried to do everything as professional as possible, but then maybe for an hour and a half, it was just giggling. There's <laughs> no way of stopping. It was just filming people kissing is really strange, and it did make me think about it, how... Uh, yeah, how special it is and that people do kiss in public, but it's very different when it's recorded. But then we we filmed it and then in editing took out the best, uh, maybe five kissing movements. And then, then it was like a month of tracing it by hand on the computer. Um, very tedious work, but... Uh, it's it's funny when you do these things, it's always a bit of a leap of faith because the idea might sound ridiculous. And then you do it, and, and especially if it's a lot of work and you're asking other people. And for me, especially in the beginning, I didn't know the effect of the works and I didn't have any money, so I had to ask people to help, uh, whether it's coding or helping to film or things like that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, probably no one will like it. I don't know. And then that work ended up uh, on all the billboards in Times Square many, many years later, but I, I had no idea. It was more... I was just exploring subjects and I was like, oh, I haven't done anything with love and, and kissing is important. So I should make a work with kisses. And So, so each website is an artwork. Um, how, how deep do you think about the artistry of each work? Like I know they each have distinct domain names and when someone buys the work, they're buying the domain. I believe they're also buying the code. Do you, do you care about the code? Do you, is that a part of the art? Like how do you think about the whole package of one of your websites? The, the 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 main thing the way a work starts is a drawing so it's always just a sketchbook and a, 
I've, I never changed that method. So I've always just sketched in a sketchbook with a black pen. And that's a way of kind of turning off the rational part of the brain and listening to your intuition. So it takes a while of maybe even making drawings that you made before and just getting past the hurdle of getting in the zone. And then um, just it's very hard to do things without a clear purpose. So you're trying to find something, but at the same time, you try not to put pressure on yourself to make something amazing. So you have to be okay, like, oh, I might be here for an hour and nothing might come out of it. And I think anyone who's, whether you're an inventor or a writer or whatever, you you know that you need to be alone without too much stimulation. And uh, it's always kind of hard. But so to me, the work starts with either a diagram or with what I call pseudocode, which is a description of what you want to happen. So if you say, okay, I, I want to make a, let's say you make an animation of a, a tree with apples and you want all the apples to randomly fall off of it. And then when they hit the floor, you want them to roll out of the frame or something like that. So that's that's how the work starts with this diagram and this description of the actions or the programming. So it's a, it's a human way. Of, I think you come from making software, but you, you are not the engineer. So you would write things down like I want A, B, C, and D to happen. And if this happens, I want that to happen. And then the next... The next step is for me to make the visual assets and send those to Rainier. And then we look at what I want and he makes a prototype, but I never really look at the code. I just look at this. He has this one configuration file where I can change all kinds of parameters. And so I don't, for example, there are uh, JavaScript libraries that we use to draw the colors and shapes, which, so you don't have to start from scratch to describe every Bezier, like somebody figured that out. So I have no control over that part of the code. And that code is replaced from time to time when browsers change. And, uh, so I, I don't think of the, of the code as, an, uh, as a precious thing because technology changes and every now and then the platform changes and you have to adjust the code and that's fine. But I, if anything, it's, it is the collaboration with Rainier that he's very patient and he understands what I want and uh, we work very well together now for 22 years. So I do think about that, like, if I had to do it with someone else, if the work would be different, uh, maybe the same way a, a director works with a certain editor. But as far as, for me, the the one of the interesting things about digital work is that as time moves along, the work can get better. And like, physical objects, uh, paintings lose color or they break, they start to crack. And so the way we see old paintings now is not the way they looked at the time they were made. And uh, there was an exhibition in the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam about abstraction. And you would see abstraction from the 1920s and from the 1960s. And they weren't that different, but they were just newer. So the paint was fresher. And you're like, that made you understand the older works better. And in the digital world, it's kind of the opposite, where I would have shown my works on a 30-inch HD monitor a few years ago, and maybe now on an 80-inch 4K monitor. And as time moves on, the work becomes sharper, the colors become more saturated, and it, it gets closer to what I want. So I, I, maybe that is, is one of those things where when you look at a painting, you're like, this is exactly what the artist intended. This is the work. There's nothing 
there's no interpretation when you show the work, but at the same time, it deteriorates. What has it been like telling people that you make websites that are artworks? Like how, how do people react to that? Is that, yeah. is that hard to get people to understand or to I believe? think so. It, well, especially in the beginning, everybody, when you would say that, there's, they're like, oh, great, I need a web designer. That was always, because people knew certain people built websites and it was kind of mysterious, like late 90s. If you could make a website, you could make just any website, you could make a lot of money. But then I would say, no, 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 I'm not a web designer. I'm, I use it as my medium. I'm an artist. But then it's one of those things, I think many artists feel this. It's very hard to explain your work, but it's very easy to show it. So when the phone, when the, the internet phone started appearing, that made it a lot easier. You're, you're somewhere at, at a dinner or a party and someone says, oh, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I'll just show you. And then... There's no, you can explain, oh, this is an object and it, it, it's not just the, and this is what, and I exhibit them this way and they are in domain names and it's, you can, but showing it makes it a lot easier. So I think here in this podcast, you can put some links in the show notes. Did, did, did that cause, did those conversations cause like crises of confidence for you? Did you just think? You just, uh, you'll no, understand someday or, no, no, or how did no. you feel about those? No, because one of the perks of the internet is, is the virality. And so I actually had an audience from the beginning. It, it, maybe that the, the, the earlier question when I was figuring out what to do as an artist in art school. So it's very fun. You get to try all the different workshops. You can try welding or wood or textile or silk screen, whatever you want. And so I tried all kinds of stuff. And, and my, I always thought my friends were a better reference than the teachers because I felt like if, if they love it, then I had a feeling I always wanted to speak to a, a, a non-expert audience. Um, so I would show things to my friends. They're like, oh, that's a cool poster. Yeah, that's a cool thing. That's, a, that's cool. And then I would show my first internet experiments and they really stood out. They're like, oh, I've never seen anything like that. So it was very clear. And then... I found free hosting and then very quickly people would email it around and the audience multiplies. And then other, other, I wouldn't even say artists or creators, but just other people experimenting with the web. It was a community. So very quickly there was a, an energy, like a feedback or a positive energy from the internet itself. So then if, if I would be at an opening in a gallery and they wouldn't understand it, it didn't really matter. That's okay. I do remember I, I had this dream where Marcel Duchamp, the, the first conceptual artist, uh, was in my dream. And he and I was in the dream. I was trying to fall asleep. And he kept waking me up. And he said, oh, can you teach me how to use the internet? And I'm like, no, no, you're too old. I, I, I don't want to explain. And so he's, he's, uh, he died in the 1960s. So it's the, I, there was that sort of learning curve but I think that's very different now. But in the beginning, I remember even in, in galleries, they didn't even have uh, electricity outlets in the viewing space. It was just nobody would do that. In, in the dream, you didn't hook up Duchamp with like an AOL account or something? No, no. He was trying to, he's like, can you show me? And I'm like, You know how it is trying to teach older people to use the computer. But yeah. That's great. So... It's just kind of a, you know, a, a not socially nice question, but there's a reason for it. But how, how much did these websites sell for? 
Like what? Yeah. How, how did you? How did you price these? How were these things exchanged? Well, the, I think I sold the first one for two thousand euros, and it was. It's kind of a random starting point, but it was. There was a couple of people that were all experimenting with work in domain names, and we were all kind of talking about it, like what what's the price of a photo and what's the price of, uh, etc. So. It was just guesswork. And then a friend of mine bought the first one and he, he had just sold a work of his own and he had some cash and he's like, okay, I'll give you cash. And then, okay, cool. And it, I made a certificate, but pricing of art is very weird. And um, it's, it's, I mean, everything with money is weird now anyways. Like why is, is GameStop worth anything? Or I, th- I think money is, is, was always weird in the art world, like kind of random. Like, why is that abstract painter worth than the other one more more than the other one? And I feel like the whole world is becoming like that now. Right? Things don't make sense. It's like a video game, and um, but as far as pricing in general in the art world, it's it's based on cultural capital. So it's based on which shows have you done? Have you had institutional support? Have you shown in museums? And it, it's very similar to a video game where you have to, like, you eat this potion and then you get a bigger sword or you get a bigger uh, weapon or something. And then it's it's exactly like that. It's uh, like, go go have dinner with this person. They'll let you into through that door. Then you can do something there. And um has nothing to do with the making, but it also does because it, it, it brings energy and confidence and production and uh, better documentation. So I think like any field, there's something about attracting good collaborators. And so if people believe in you and they want to do something with you, then everything around the work gets better. And if everything around the work gets better, the work starts to look better also. It, it's like, oh, you know, like if you're a band, why does the good band also get the good uh, photo for their cover and and or the good... They happen to be, let's say the Ramones happen to be friends with, with a great art director who made that logo that now H&M makes a lot of money off of. Like, or Black Flag, they, they just happen to be friends with someone who made one of the best band logos of all time. You know, it's, it's like, it's funny that kind of synergy, but it's, it's uh, like talent wants to work with other talent or that, that kind of thing. Mm. Like, like, why did the Rolling Stones have such an iconic logo? I guess the Beatles didn't really. Yeah? They did, they did, but they didn't, you know, they didn't not need the, the logo, not, not yeah. the way the Stones did. Yeah. So, you you know, in, in this, like, weird video game world of money that we're in now, um, you are now a... That's not an exaggeration, right? Yeah, it's no, like, not really, at all, not at yeah. all. Yeah. And, and It's like a Monty Python world. Yeah. And you are, you are now more a part of it than you were before. And, and it really started, well, just, just, it started earlier this year when, um, with, with NFTs and, and hilariously the, we had a conversation where I, I called you, uh, and asked you if you checked out NFTs, because I thought it seemed interesting. And my main takeaway looking at it was that I didn't think the art was particularly 
interesting. Uh, no, but and, then, and but you, you had you had invested also a little bit years before, and you, you I remember you saying, Bitcoin is either going to be everything or nothing. Mm-hmm. So you you were already comfortable with with the. I I had always stayed away from investing because I felt like it takes over your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that conversation where I was like, you should check out this NFT thing, you were skeptical, and I wonder yeah. if you can remember what. What was in that skepticism? You know, what what were your gut many, instincts when you yeah, thought many, about Yeah, many many different things. So, um, as you said, my work is code based, and NFT is a bit like Instagram, where it favors either pictures or videos. So I I wasn't sure about that limitation, and then the whole abstraction of money, decentralization, decentralization of the internet, and open source. I I always felt like those things feel fragile and user hostile. And I like software that's smooth and friendly and mass audience. So that was kind of a hesitance. It's also just like going to the platform and thinking, oh, if this this is what they want, they want photorealistic 3D, then they're probably not going to be excited for my work. So maybe that was part of it. But I didn't see, maybe I'm just... Um, Maybe this is it. This is the the real answer. There's been many trends in the digital and a lot of them I didn't like. And I'm happy that through the years I stuck with domain names. So VR happened and a lot of artists jumped on VR and I never liked the feeling of a helmet on my head and other things happened. 3D printing I was not so interested in and other things. And you know how there's always these consultants with buzzwords and then they say, oh, 3D printing is the future. We're going to build cities with 3D printing and someone's selling you something. So that I think there's a skeptical side of me saying, am I being sold something or is this of value to me? So I think that that sort of product cycle of the digital where it's like, this is the new big thing. This is the new big thing. You have to get on TikTok. You have to get on Snapchat. And the price you pay is your attention. So I'm always uh, careful with my attention. Like, am I going to add another facet to my life that will take away from concentrated, focused sketching time? Because anything you do, like I jumped into podcasting because I like podcasting. I I genuinely like listening to podcasts and I like uh, the art of conversation. And I, I think I was attracted to it from the start, but I didn't have that with VR and I didn't have that with Snapchat and other things. And so NFT came along and my first thought was if there wasn't any money in this, would I be interested in it? Hmm. That was one of the things, but it was a thing that you have to try it. You can't, you can't uh, theoretically, you can't just think about it. Like once you try it and you understand this idea of, of, permanent ownership because a domain name is, is, is not permanent, but it's a rental and that's a whole different feeling. So I was hesitant and then it was very successful, much to my surprise. And now I don't even, I don't want to defend NFTs, but because I'm clearly benefiting from it so much that my defense is, is biased. So, um, yeah, you don't want to be the new sale, the new salesperson here. Yeah, like a shoes person telling you why shoes are important. Like, yeah. So, but I I can talk about the difference between the the before and after, and it, it does feel like a new era. And 
maybe you know part of it is that the crypto culture can be kind of it can take over someone's mind and personality and and th there's this utopian rhetoric like oh once we build this chain of trust and everything's decentralized and I remember the same arguments for the web when people said, oh, the web will bring everyone together and then uh, people from other countries will understand everybody and there will be more empathy. And that's not what happened. And so the same thing with crypto when they say, oh, well, this is much more efficient than having all these institutions. It's like, well, we'll have to wait and see. Not There are many different outcomes possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So since we had that conversation, you've put up as of this recording five works on foundation yeah. on the website foundation as nfts um the first of those like you said did better than you expected it sold for hundred and ninety thousand dollars worth of ethereum yeah um which is nuts yeah, yeah. And, and afterwards um you texted me you said uh, quoting you i hope this doesn't end up with me having the head of a horse um which is refer <laughs> referring to the movie sorry to bother you yeah uh, so can you, what were you thinking when you sent that? What did you feel when you had that unexpected success? Well, it, it, it felt like I had worked for so long, almost at a break-even point with my digital work. Uh, so I, I would get fees for showing work or selling work, but there's also a lot of costs in maintaining the server and programmers and all that stuff. So I did okay, but my income for someone living in New York is quite low. And then someone gives you a raise that's like a hundredfold in one day. And then it, it feels like um, someone's going to say, hey, I supported you. Now you owe me big time. That's what it felt like. Like there's a price to pay. There's no free lunch or something like that. It, when, you, when, you, um, when you increase 3% every year, let's say, I don't think you have that feeling. But when all of a sudden in one day, your hourly rate goes up hundred a hundredfold. Uh, it's a strange feeling, yeah. And I, I, maybe I'm a bit paranoid, but I was like, oh, this there must be something weird about this because why would someone spend this much on something that last week was uh, was priced a hundred times less? Is there something weird? Have you, have you have you discovered what? No, no. But I, I I mean, one of the things that's very clear to me now is that there's a an internet audience and there's the the circle around galleries and each gallery has its own circle of clients and those were very mismatched so i i've always had a big internet audience so that's a way i could justify that price like when the internet started before social media i had an audience of maybe the first 10 years and even now like more than 40 million people per year and some years 60 65 million people would visit my websites together all the websites combined. So I've always had this huge audience that I couldn't monetize. There was no, I, I had banners for a while, didn't really work. And I couldn't directly monetize the internet audience. So it was more, I would do an exhibition and there was a mismatch of generations because the exhibition, like you said, it was, you have to explain why is this art? Why is this? These were people that were kind of not tech savvy, not digital first. And then there was this huge digital first audience that, couldn't come to the exhibition because it was so local. So I think there was a huge mismatch of energy. And I think now, just because now the work has a, a buy button right next to the work that changes it so much. Yeah. And, and thinking about, you know, watching this happen with you and 
it just made me wonder if like if this is the result of a domain switch where in the past you were a digital artist working in the physical world and trying to justify you know justify a different medium um you know and that but now you're a digital artist operating in a digital world so it's like the value systems are native you know it's and so there's like this click that yeah that that's, that's a good point yeah and and one of the things that's interesting in in uh, the gallery space still images are at an advantage over moving images and th- there's there's nothing cynical about that or dark it's just when you want to show a moving image it's very expensive and it's hard to sell uh, so you have to mount huge screens if you want to make it look good I, I went to some places where you have these custom led walls and then you're talking two hundred thousand dollars to set up a nice screen and then making a painting is very easy and you just hang it and you light it easily it photographs easily everything you know in software everything is about being user-friendly and convenient so in in the physical world paintings are the most user-friendly and in the digital world moving images are at an advantage and i'm good at moving images so all of a sudden you enter this world where what before was difficult now is actually a plus looking at the looking at the five pieces you've done so far a few things stand out about them. One is that just in terms of the price being paid for your work, it's been steadily increasing. I know you've tried, you've released work that if you're thinking maybe wouldn't be as interesting to the public to try to disrupt that trend a little bit, uh, as we've talked about. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's called the punk rock guilt. <laughs> punk rock guilt. Look, let's, let's look at that punk rock guilt. So... You did this piece, Deep Blue, and then this piece, Almost Nothing, so more minimalist pieces, uh, and one sold for the most of any of your works, uh, another for a bit less. But why why the punk rock guilt? What, what's happening there for you? Oh, well, it's, it, it's kind of a shock. And I think uh, um, I've never, because I moved around so many times to different countries, I kept downsizing my belongings. And so I developed this whole personality and ethos around not owning anything and just being able to pack up and leave and go wherever I want and change environment. And so it's kind of, I'm not a Buddhist or I I don't meditate, but I, I like this idea of less attachments because it, it really removes the most precious thing to me is, is headspace and time and attention. And so when you say I want 12 cars, then all of a sudden you're like, I need insurance. I need to store them. I need to take care of them. They need to be cleaned. Uh, oh, there's something wrong. And, and that takes over part of your brain. And I think that's part of where all of a sudden it's like, there's money coming in. What does this mean? Uh, this is a weird source of income. Will my bank shut me down? Because the, the I, I opened a new bank account and they said, explicitly no crypto no crypto stuff here so it is a bit i think part of it is that it's crypto like if if all the success had come through a gallery and it was just uh us dollars all the time and the other thing that's weird about all this is that the money is public so i think in art you must know a lot of people like you even interviewed another artist recently and you probably have no idea what what their income is and that's nice. Why would you want people to know the income? You want people to look at the work. And so maybe it, it's not punk rock guilt, but it is this weird public facing, oh, now everybody knows exactly how much I was paid for this work at that time. And um, 
but I'm, I'm getting more used to it, but it was kind of a shock. How, how are you getting used to it? Well, I, I spoke to my accountant and I spoke to different, one of the first reactions um, was that my gallery in New York kicked me out uh, because they were starting their own NFT platform and they weren't happy that I was on another platform. And I work with three different galleries now two, and there was a bit of tension there. Like we invested time in you and now another platform sells your work. So there's a conflict there and maybe that's a general disruption sort of emotion where the older business model has to adapt. So there was that. And then um, there was different sort of outbursts of weird energy from people towards me that would have never happened if these works were sold in a gallery and no one knew the price. It's fine. It's this. I understand the whole gamification of this platform and that the whole fun of it is that it is public, but there are downsides to that too. Has it made making this work less fun or like more no, pressure no. filled or anything like that? No, no, that's actually interesting because um, the way it started with my websites, I would make two, three, four of them per year. And like I said, with the kissing piece, it took me a lot of time, but as the work got more abstract, I also moved faster. And also my collaboration with Rainier over the years has become more, we're very in tune with each other. So, and we build on the previous work. So it, it's all pretty, we're, it's like an oiled machine. So it's easier to make work, but the last two, three years, I'd accumulated so many domain names and the, the upkeep and the especially the administrative side of it, which sounds weird, but I have all these spreadsheets of like emails of the collectors that own the domain names and which has been transferred and which hasn't yet. And that's all the stuff that's not fun. So what happened was the last three years, I had made maybe 25 or 30 websites that I didn't release. It's a little bit like Aphex Twin, where he's always sitting on a hard drive full of amazing tracks that he just doesn't feel like doing all the press and album art and all that shit. He just wants to make the music. So I was a little bit at that point where I didn't want to put them in domain names and the, the financial return was so low that it was more fun for me to not sell them. Like it was at the point where if I, I felt like if I keep going and I'm really managing a thousand domain names, it's just insanity at some point. And so the, my own model, my independent domain name based model was becoming uh, a bottleneck more than a, than fun. And now that this happened, I'm having a lot of fun. The works are still code based, but then they become a recording. So Rainier has been programming where the work is random, but we make a recording where the beginning and the end are the same. So it is a video, but it has the unpredictable element that I didn't animate it, but it, it happened and we recorded it. And the other thing I'm really into is the square uh, image format, which I've always made works that adapt to the ratio of a monitor, but then you end up always showing it on a 16 by nine monitor, either portrait mode or landscape, but it's always a rectangle. And now all of a sudden I'm focused on the square and it's like a new impulse for me. So it has been really fun. I think maybe the, it all happened very fast, but maybe the first 10 days I, I had anxiety over Another thing that, that uh, there's regulation in Europe. So my galleries in Europe were nervous. They said, if you sell a work over 10,000 in Europe, you need to verify the identity of the buyer. You need to have a photocopy of their ID and they need to fill out a form. 
to make sure it's not money laundering. So different art world friends of mine said, oh, be careful, you could go to jail for this. This is what maybe I meant with the anxiety. It wasn't even the punk rock guilt, but really like what are the legal repercussions? And then I spoke to a few people who worked at international galleries and they said, yeah, we do have to do that for European clients, but in the US it's not regulated. So you don't have that obligation of identifying the buyer. And then that's when I started feeling more at peace. And it, it was more before that maybe for different reasons, uh, my collaborators were putting a, a certain amount of stress on me and I wanted to verify the legal issues. And But now it's really fun. How many... How many, you made reference to it, so I have to ask, how many domain names uh, do you own? Um, I'm not sure. I would have to check, but maybe 150. Like, I have a couple of domains that I'm not using. And then a lot of the domains are also with the collectors. And sometimes I buy a domain, maybe fitting a work in later, and then I let it expire. And um, one of the interesting things also with NFT is that all of a sudden now I'm free to choose a title that is not available as a domain name. So that piece that went very well was called Deep Blue, but of course, deepblue.com is taken. So I was always, for 20 years, I could only choose names that were available. So it was kind of a fun game. And I would use these different internet tools where you enter five words and it'll find all the combinations of those words that are available and you come up with weird titles. But now it it really feels, I don't want to be a crypto evangelist, but it really feels like we're on a, on a shift uh, from different kind of internet. And I think I'm happy that I jumped in and uh, it has its own character. So I'm, I'm happy to explore it. And it, I, I think a lot of other artists also, like a lot of my peers that started out with the internet at some point moved more to exhibitions and physical works. And now they're all getting back to the digital and we're all very connected. And I feel the same communal energy that was there in 99, 2000. Yeah. So what is, what is this, new internet like and yeah you, you compare it to the early internet but what, what what do you observe about what's happening now well one of the things that, that i observe is that you have to be a bit of a digital expert to even use it and that's similar to the beginning where installing wordpress or using ftp or uh, setting up mysql is kind of hard and at some point all that became really easy but there's something cool when only a few people understand it so I, I like that aspect. Does that mean that as this becomes, you know, more productized and available, that like the this spirit will change? You know, is that is that an inevitability? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I saw an interview with Beeple, and he said this will the the end game for for cultural NFTs is that there will just be a buy now button on every Instagram post, and it'll be to the Facebook blockchain and it'll be way easier. That like that is the one one of the things I liked about the early internet was, was the low bandwidth. And so you couldn't do video. And I remember doing an interview maybe in 2001 and I said I worry about the days that the bandwidth will be very high and the internet will start to look like CNN. And that's what happened. You know, TV sucked. It was like all this information all over the place that you don't want and just constant beaming of fear into your brain. And that's what the internet became again. But if you go to the NFT world, I don't think it's so fear-based, constant shock and awe and, and attention seeking. It's more like strange, dreamy experiments. Uh, the other day, 
you and I were talking and I, I was talking to you about just some challenging feelings I was having about working by myself so much, which I've been doing that for several years. And you said to me something to the effect of that's what's hard about artist time. You use this phrase artist time. And you've, you've referenced that a couple of times in our conversation here. So can you talk about like, what are the priorities that you have to create with sort of artist time, how you think about this? Yeah. Well, the, the, I often hear this idea of flow and being in the flow. And I find that I can be in the flow with practical matters or like video compression or uh, answering emails or that kind of stuff. But the creative act itself for me is not a state of flow, but more, it's more like fishing or waiting. Like you, you, you throw out uh, your, your fishing line and you wait. Um, but one of the things I noticed as, as time went by and the mobile phone came along and it's more and more entertainment is that it's, it's harder and harder to be bored. And for me, boredom is the main source of creativity. And maybe that's similar to meditation or quietness, but to me, it really feels like boredom. It's, it's quite a negative state. Uh, it's, it's negative in the sense that you, you tend to avoid it instinctively like whenever you're in in the line at the post office or whatever you'll check your phone and see like oh what's going on i think it's very natural for us to seek information and so for me art time is when you shut out the information and um i just saw an interview with steven spielberg and he said that the, the regular world shouts and intuition whispers and it sounds a little bit corny, but I think it's very true that it's you ha you have to quiet yourself, and part of quieting is also maybe turning off the internet or turning off the radio or uh, turning off appointments with people. And yeah, I, I think it's very natural for us to try to fill our calendar. I think we even we're, we're taught to maximize our time and, and to. I even met some Silicon Valley people who were into speed reading. They're like, this is how you read a book five times faster. And yeah, I, I think as we are taught to be as efficient as possible, there's also a, a trade-off. What is the trade-off to artist time? You know, what what is, when I was coming to you with that, I was, you know, expressing like, I'm, I'm, I'm not being with people enough or, you know, I, sort of having those kinds of thoughts. Do you struggle with those things or those things you think about? Yeah, well, I definitely, I've been working by myself for many, many years. I mean, I've lived with roommates. So then you're with other people and then you also have relationships. But overall, I spend a lot of time by myself, but then I do like to go to lunch with people. And I notice if I really don't see anyone the whole day, I become unhappy. It's very clear. It starts to become down. And then, if I set up too many meetings, then I just don't get anything done and I don't make new work. So it's, it's a balancing act. And uh, um, it, it, I think it's very similar to exercise where you have to set aside time and you probably have to do it in the morning. If you don't do it in the morning, then in the afternoon things pop up. And if you say, I want to do 20 minutes of stretching and 20 minutes of jogging at least five times a week, let's say, it sounds really easy, but 99% of people can't do it. And, and you'd think, why? Um, I'm not talking about 
being an Olympic athlete where you're training seven hours a day, but just that basic, you know, I can't even do it. Like, why can't I uh, do a hundred pushups every day? It's, it's very funny why we can't do it. We want to, in theory, I, but yeah, I, I would compare it to that. Like in theory, everybody should do yoga, but uh, we don't. So you, you know, you, you, you were talking about these moments where, because we're bored, we reach for a phone, you know, we flip windows on our computer to something that's distracting. Um, when you are feeling, you know, that urge, maybe it happens after like seven minutes or something, you know, you get your first pang of like yeah. Twitter saying, why haven't you looked at me? There's something great here. Well, I, I, I use different tools and when I'm busy, I can't even... That was one of the downsides of the NFT thing is that you do have to use social media because the last year I'd been reducing it more and more. And so I have different software to shut off social media on my computer. There's this one called self-control and you enter a list of domain names, uh, facebook.com, twitter.com, and uh, shopping websites, uh, anything news. And then you hit a timer and it's, it changes something in your system. You have to enter your system password. And then even if you restart your computer, you can't access any content from those domains for four or five hours or whatever you set. And that really, it's amazing once you shut off all the distraction, how much faster, how much more you can get done. It's, 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 I don't know if this is the same for everyone, but it's amazing to me how quickly, exactly that feeling you're like, oh, I answered five emails. Now I can treat myself to some RSS. I I also use self control, so I definitely I, I, I yeah. yeah. I mean, you're a writer. You you definitely know that you need to shut off things if you want to get things done. Yeah, but you forget, right? I mean, you 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 yeah. make great work by creating that discipline, and then. But I can't remember the writer, but there was one who had an old PC, and he even put crazy glue in the Ethernet port so he couldn't even tempt himself to. He had an offline machine just to be able to write. Yeah, I mean, when I when I first started writing, this could be your future. I mean, we were having lunch then, but I, you know, I was in an apartment every day that had no internet intentionally. Like, I got the internet disconnected before yeah. I moved in, for that reason. Yeah. Um, but I think in in both our work, we're not really looking on the internet for ideas when we want to write. Yeah. Or, no. Or yeah. I. Maybe. You know. You think, oh, I need to have it so I can check something. But what you realize is, you just make a list of things that you're going to check the next time you're on a computer. And it take, ends up it takes two minutes yeah. to check the five yeah. things and you didn't end up under exactly. you know an hour of like Wikipedia wormholes. Well, I think uh, the band Craftwork, uh, which started as a psychedelic rock band and then they kind of invented electronic pop music, um, they had a rule the phone was only plugged in for half an hour a day. That's the only time they were reachable in the studio. They just had this sacred studio time. And I, I think it's the same for any discipline. Like if you're practicing ballet, you, you're not going to hold your phone while you do it. I, maybe that's the whole thing is like, if you, if you want to do something, you have to really do it. If you're practicing guitar, you can't just be looking at CNN at the same, I guess maybe like Beeple is known to always have CNN in his uh, studio next to him. If you were to, Think across your life to this point. You know, you, you're growing up in the family you grew up in. You began making websites. You know, at, 
where where is this moment you are now where you know recognized it feels like in a fundamentally kind of bigger way here in just the past few months mm-hmm. what do you what do you think what do you think this moment is well i'm i'm very careful i'm 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 very careful uh attributing any kind of uh, status to those sales because it also feels like it's just a few people that were bidding and they could get bored. So it, I'm very aware that things could be very different in three months. Like maybe it's a trend or maybe it will persist. I don't know. I do think this idea of attaching value to digital things is interesting and it might persist. Um, the way I see it more is not think of it as like, now I'm a better artist than the world can understand, but it's more like, this will create economic security and I'll be free to make these things for a long, long time. Um, but I think the last five years I've been past the point that I've all, I've always had trust. I could be a full-time artist. That's to me, the main, the main goal. I always say everything after that is details. And that's why maybe I was also a little shocked with the amount because at some point your possessions can become so much work that they get in the way of being free. Um, but to me, like if I can pay off an apartment and, uh, know that I don't have to pay rent the rest of my life or something like that, some kind of, uh, system, um, that creates a lot of, it removes a lot of stress that that should be the goal of money to remove stress. But as far as, um, I, th- I think one of the benefits of, of having a higher price tag is also that other projects come along and interesting collaborations and. Uh, other exhibitions so i'm hoping but we'll still have to see how this plays out because it it could be the way i see it is that the traditional art world might feel threatened and then say nft is dirty and any artist that works with nft we don't want there there could be an effect like that yeah yeah i hadn't i hadn't really thought of that do you think so you would say there there is a likelihood of that that there would be a a circling the wagons well, you, you you know indie music, and when when bands start to make money, people are like, "That's not my band anymore." So there's there's there are different emotions, and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Any anything else you wanted to talk about? No, uh, I, I mean, I would say that the NFT thing is very fascinating, and I'm happy I jumped in, and I hope it's just the beginning. That's that's my hope because it's it's also a new format for me, so I'm figuring it out and. Uh, we'll see, because it it seems a little bit too good to be true. Maybe that was the the paranoia in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In ge- in general, you know, I, my belief is that value creation being divorced from materialism is a is a good thing, and and, and the notion that code can create value in all kinds of forms, not just like Facebook having value as a form of code. Mm-hmm. That's exactly that's a good point. That's exactly how I feel when people say, "What's the what's new about this internet?" Is that it's not ad based. Thanks so much to Raphael for a great conversation and thanks to you for listening. This does it for season one of the Idea Space podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can check out the archive to listen to past episodes and I'll be with you together again in the fall for season two.
Peace and love.